Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's New Year's week. Happy 2016, y'all. So this will be our second and final Holiday Clips episode of the season. Next week, back to new shows. But first, another of my favorite shows of 2015, my conversation with sculptor Phyllida Barlow. We spoke in front of a full house at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas, which was exhibiting Trist, a fantastic installation of mini Barlows across its Renzo Piano design building. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, it was one of the best shows I saw all year. Since then, just this week in fact, the Queen of England named Barlow a commander of the British Empire, a CBE for her service to art. Congrats to Philida. Our June 2015 conversation, after the break. The Dallas Museum of Art will serve as the exclusive American venue for a new exhibition of works by Jackson Pollock, the first in over three decades to survey a phase of his work known as the Black Paintings. Jackson Pollock Blind Spots explores this relatively neglected yet wholly compelling part of the artist's practice and offers a new perspective on the work of one of the most famous artists of the 20th century. Jackson Pollock Blind Spots is on view November 20th to March 20th. Visit dma.org for more information. In 2009, the Getty Foundation launched the Online Scholarly Catalog Initiative to rethink the museum collection catalog for the digital age. Eight museums received grants to work collaboratively to tackle the challenges of online publishing by creating new prototypes, exploring interactive opportunities including the ability to zoom in on detailed images of artworks, overlay them with conservation documentation, and view artists' videos, just to name a few. All eight digital catalogs are now freely available online. To learn more and to browse the catalogs, visit getty.edu foundation. Philida Barlow, <laughs> welcome back to the Modern Art Notes Thank podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to start with one of the wildly impressive experiences in, in, in Dallas and in art at the moment is kind of turning the corner from the sidewalk into the Nasher and being struck by this, by the monumentality of what you've done in that main middle bay. And so when you did your show at the Tate Britain dock, um, Adrian Searle, the British critic, wrote that what on a smaller scale can seem clunky becomes magnificently theatrical here. And turning from the sidewalk into the museum here, I think, has that, that same experience. So is it easier for you to go big and dramatic like that or, or to work small? They're very different experiences. Working big involves the assistants who were here working with me during the last two weeks. So it has a collaborative element about it. And the actual production of the work is, is performative and theatrical. But what makes a huge difference, it's not that it's... It's not a competition of which is easier. It's more a different experience. But even with the bigger works, the sections never really get much bigger than my own dimensions. It's only when they start to accumulate do they take on that kind of size. So I never think of myself as necessarily somebody who works big. (laughs) The bigness is part of an adventure to explore space. It's almost a tool, a piece of equipment that enables me to reach up into the areas of the space that aren't usually occupied by art. And so to me, it's very much at that moment in the studio, my own curiosity. I always think of that quote from mountaineers, and I can't even, I could hardly walk out the stairs without getting vertigo. So why (laughs) I would um, have this thing about mountaineers, I don't know. but, But it's that thing about being asked, why do they climb? these mountains, and the answer is because it's there. And I think I have that same relationship with art spaces. You know, the spaces are there in all their manifestations. There's high up, there's low down, there's width, there's going down. And especially here, the discoveries about this space I made whilst installing the work was absolutely phenomenal and endlessly surprising. And I hadn't completely appreciated that when I did the site visit. So for the people at home who haven't seen the piece yet, 
two-thirds of the show comes within six inches of the ceiling. Lots of pieces get, get all the way up there. Just to give a, a quick bit of, bit of background, you kind of respond to sight in, in, in when you plan an installation such as mm. this. Can you kind of walk us through how you engage with a building and think of putting together you know, five, six, ten pieces for a space the way you did here? Well, I think the show began to be made hard on the heels of making the Tate show. So there was a sort of run on about that way of exploring a very, very beautifully built art space. You know, the Tate Devine galleries are a series of different marbles and granites that rise up to this vaulted ceiling with a light going running the whole length so it's 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 a fantastic space to take on sculpturally and it was in a way this reciprocated it very much every surface is superb you know and the way the light does enter this building is extraordinary because the materials are natural materials and also the walls are real walls. They're not <laughs> fabricated walls that divide up the space as one might see in many white cube spaces. So it's, the argument of what to do is very much taking on the fabric of the space and the dimensions of the space. And the more difficult issue was the fact that there upstairs is two parallel spaces, which is actually quite uncomfortable for a way of how an audience might negotiate those spaces. So you're coming in and you're heading straight down one and then you can take a right and you look right and left at the other. So it, it's quite controlling of how you experience the space, which actually is quite similar to, to the Tate. But I wanted to try and disrupt that as much as possible by making the objects I use primarily take an audience, initially myself, I suppose, in how I related to the space, take me on that adventure of being able to look up, look through, look across, look backwards and forwards, and to then begin to think of a series of contrasting objects that would both welcome and then rebuff and then draw you on and then take you back again through all a series of different media, colours, forms that opened and shut or hung or made you look up and into and beyond. So the building was very much perhaps a kind of subject of the work initially and definitely the narrative was to go to be greeted by these these balancing crates that would in some ways remain in a state of limbo then I, my idea in the studio was that they would be rather provisional and as they were made under some kind of duress they were made with rather a short window of making time that that urgency of making would still be retained within them. So the sort of naked underneaths of them would be left like that. And the way that they're sort of held together would be very exposed. In, in my view, the sort of half-made object or the remains of things that aren't necessarily completely finished, I have a fascination for that. And just just to comment on that, it always seems to me extraordinary that our sort of lineage of Western art is very dependent on broken fragments of things for which we have no problem. You know, we look at torsos that don't have limbs, you know, that come from Hellenic times, you know, that are, what, six, seven thousand years old. Found in and the they, found in water, wherever, Yes, yeah. yeah, they're iconic. This is this is great, you know, and Western art runs out of that, that greatness. And there doesn't seem to be an issue that the arms are missing and the legs are missing. You know, so the fragment and the half finished has 
for me, as I think it does for everybody, a certain beauty, you know, it's sublime. I'm not comparing my art to <laughs> great Greek art. <laughs> well, before we're done with, with, with the building, so the, the National, I'm sorry, the Tate in, in, in London is a John Russell Pope and W.H. Romain Walker building. This, of course, is, is a Renzo Piano. To me, it seems like it would be kind of a jarring difference going from kind of those long, narrow, tall hallways in, in, a, in a neoclassical building to really different spaces here. Is it? No. That's what I, I found mm. fascinating, was that there was reciprocity between the two. But not the not oppositionally, but in... Yes, yeah. in this, the, the, the length being quite problematic. Maybe sculpture can very easily become pictorial when there is mm. one entrance point and, yeah. and that's it. This, that certainly isn't the case here. But the length means that you're stacking things up against each other so that they start to obliterate each other. And therefore, it seemed to me important in the first instance to try and go high so that the, the act of looking up was very much part of the experience and then being able to see beyond the, first, the impact of the first objects. In the studio, it's very, very difficult to consider the audience. But the minute the work comes into the space, it, it does become theatrical and performative. The audience becomes the absolute key part of how the work begins to get put together and assembled. And that's when I hope the generosity begins. <laughs> I think there's a meanness of spirit in the studio where the making is so intense that it's a, a kind of selfish, self-obsessed activity at that point. But then it has to evolve into something very different. So there are two incredibly different stages. And to go back to your first question, the small works are completely different. They happen in a very private way. They happen quickly. They get abandoned. They get thrown away. They go through all kinds of cycles of making, which is just a relationship between me and those objects. You mentioned looking up, and many of the pieces here encourage us to look up. When you come into the entrance gallery, you look up into the crates. Mm. I, I don't want to give a piece away, but when you, when you get the stockade, which is the big kind of not quite square piece on the garden side in the second gallery, there is a point at which, as you circumnavigate it, it is hinted to the potential viewer that the viewer should find a way to look up, mm. if you will. With, with Hanging Monument, the, the, the piece of the hanging kind of mm. pipe-like thing, you are encouraged to look up at the armature and to see mm. how that is working. So when and why did the act of making the viewer look up become interesting or important? I think it's always been there, either in a latent form, really a question that emerged very early on, which is, where does art end up? I know it doesn't seem to be answering your question. You know, do you, as in my case, enjoy it, or as I was doing in the 80s and 90s, just putting it on the roof of our then car, taking it somewhere and just putting it on a street corner <laughs> and, and abandoning <laughs> these things. And finally, after a few years of doing that, one night at three o'clock in the morning, I took them all to Blackfriars Bridge and chucked them in the Thames. And <laughs> such is the way of artists, you know. And it was one of the most liberating things I've done. <laughs> but I think... That question of what is the destination for art? Is it someone's home? Is it a gallery? Is it a museum? Do you, as an artist who hasn't got collectors or galleries or museums, do you take that initiative yourself? Yes, of course you do. You go and find places. And maybe I began to think of, as I did when I was putting these, place, these objects around London in obscure places, I would sometimes put them high up, you know, above abandoned houses, doorways, or in strange nooks and crannies that were slightly out of reach. And it, it began to fascinate me, that idea that 
certainly a lot of the world is about looking up, looking into trees, looking at the sky. And why does art conform to this sort of eye-level tide line, if you know what I mean? No, I do. <laughs> and sculpture, of all things, seems to be able to invite the possibility both of defying gravity or using gravity as a material in its own right in trying to fight it, like the wonderful Ellsworth Kelly piece, which has the most amazing piece of fixing under the floorboard. So there's a sort of illusionistic apparatus going on there. I should, I but, should mention that the permanent collection gallery here was uh, almost entirely selected by Philida. So a lot of my enjoyment then began to be about placing and almost like hiding, placing as a form of hiding. And where would that be? And when I went round London to collect the remains of the objects I dotted around, I think I've got four or five. They now inhabit a space on the top of a, a cupboard in my house, you know, and they've, they're thick with dust. And <laughs> such is my skill as a homemaker. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think this, this, the way we also, in, in terms of a, a domestic, you know, we place things all over the place and it goes questioned, it's what we do as human beings, you know, we, we store all those unanswered correspondence between the bread bin and the wall, or I do, I don't know, <laughs> you know, there are these clusters of extraordinary everyday life deposited in extraordinary corners, you know, and I think sculpture isn't just about inhabiting a comfortable space. It's a very awkward, difficult art form, and I think it, it can play with that. You know, another way a lot of the pieces here play with space is they encourage us to look through them, to, 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 to see what's in the middle mm. or um, on the other side. And, and I, I, I want to talk about a couple of those, those pieces. Mm. First, maybe the, the large boulder-like pieces, which have hunks of wood and steel going through them. Yeah. And in a couple parts have these square portal-like openings with lots of gunk and goo in there. Mm. And it's... Yeah, they're fun to, to walk around and look into, mm. and there, you know, there, there is this temptation to stick your hand in there and see mm. what might happen. And I mean, you know, are they alive? <laughs> and and so, I, you know, when I think of of sculpture that has holes in it, I think yes. of of uh, two Brits, Hepworth and Moore. Absolutely. And yes. I think of an American, Jackie Windsor. And I wonder if those those holes or portals into those pieces how much it has to do with each of those three. Absolutely, totally. The hole in the sculpture, I think, is an extraordinary invention about making something very solid and obstructive have the other world on the other side visible and then going round and seeing the world that you've just been in revealed again. So it's doing many things that argue with that physical state. It's in a way trying to defy it and puncture it. And I think it's an actual willful act on the part of artists to try and do that. Even painters, if uh, just looking at the, in the Rachowski collection yesterday, the fantastic Fontana there, the yellow Fontana with the bullet holes or whatever they are he used to shoot through, that, that I think artists do have a sort of destructive, violent side to them where the act of making isn't a caress always. It's actually quite brutal. Our acts of making are, you know, often as the noise this last two weeks has proved of the drills and the cutting of the steel and everything, it's the actions themselves are quite murderous, you know. But then they're also, there are very gentle actions as well. But the whole in sculpture is, is I think, a combination of those. It's, it's a loving act to, in a way, 
enable something to breathe, to allow oxygen, air to flow through the whole thing. It's also the act of trying to escape, you know, burst through and explode out the other side. And I'm sort of absolutely intrigued by all those 20th century tropes, if you like, of trying to make sculpture have different forms of behavior in spite of the rigidity of the materials that were, were chosen. And you see that right across the board in, in many different ways. It's like the collapsed object, which in a way was one of the, the great things of Arte Povera, you know, or for instance, Robert Morris's felt pieces or his steam pieces, you know, things that usually have a, a way of not being fixed permanently, you know, so that being able to absorb that into sculpture in its actual state of feltness or steamness or string or all the extraordinary materials the Arte Povera artists use, I think in a way were a kind of equivalent to the whole. It's dis disturbing or destabilizing the status quo of, of an object that might have a certain fixedness about it, mm. but refuses to be that. When, when we talked a couple years ago, you said that early in your career, you and kind of an entire generation of British sculptors were done with Henry Moore, done with Barbara <laughs> Hepworth. I mean, it was, you know, it had been done. It was I'm embarrassed the end about of a line. what I said about Hep and, Barbara Hepworth at that time. <laughs> well, but you, but you also said that you, you know, a, a couple of years ago, we're, we're, we're kind of going back to them a little bit and oh, finding definitely. things. Yes, and, and yes. I, yeah. I did not ask at the time and wish I had and can now. What in their work was it that you found useful to go back to? The invented form. I think at the time in the early 60s, the British obsession with landscape and craft and then the sort of hybrid marriage of those things becoming very figurative, as, as in the case of Henry Moore, was like a sort of stifling mantra, you know, mm. things that the bullying within sculpture departments of how you had to make and how you had to learn how to make. And in the Chelsea School of Art, there was a notice on the welding shop, no women allowed. And I... <laughs> I think, you know, in that background, someone somewhere along the line is going to get very, very angry indeed. <laughs> I was certainly that person. And I think uh, the, combined with the fact that all these things I was meant to learn, the welding, the woodwork, and I was just incredibly bad at. I just couldn't get to grips with it. So it became clay. And clay also performed in all sorts of quite amazing ways. It could be w almost like paint. You know, there was a, you could swipe it and whack it with wood. You could do all sorts of things with it. And then if you began to combine it with an armature that could be made in the most rough and expedient way, it completely overrode the craft obsession which I felt had sort of dominated British, I felt dominated British art. Mm. You know, the learning how to do something, and once you'd learned how to do it, you were ticked off, you were, you know, you got your tick and that was it. And I just felt there must be other ways of approaching this. And there were some teachers at that time who were absolutely on the same page as that. But now looking back at it, I think, especially with Barbara Hepworth, there's about to be a massive retrospective of her work. The, the, the sheer stunning invention of her forms are something that I think has left sculptural language in a way. It's been replaced by an obsession, an ongoing obsession with the ready-made, the found object and the appropriated object. Although I think, you know, that is clearly Duchamp's legacy and I have fantastic respect for Duchamp. I also think the way he's been academicized, you know, he's become the intellectual high ground for certainly within 
art institutions. I think that's also combined with a kind of ignorance of knowing more about what he felt about making. If you read his essay, The Creative Act, it's just all about transformation of materials and being able to change things, you know, transform things from one state into another state. And that I think he says, you know, what's the point of an idea? And I think that's absolutely fantastic because I think ideas, I'm not sure I've ever had an idea in my life, actually. So <laughs> it's very, very reassuring to find that, you know, my arch enemy, Duchamp, <laughs> felt the same. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for an artist to survive into a fifth generation, which is, I guess, probably what we're approaching with kind of post-Duchampian yes, sort. Yes, yeah. <laughs> One of the other characteristics of a lot of the work here, mm. I mean, when, when you look at a, at a Henry Moore, you can tell it's heavy, because it's heavy. But with a lot of uh, your work here, <laughs> but also in other of your work, it's impossible to tell whether it's heavy or not. Mm. Mm. And I, how intentional is that? Very. I mean, I love the... I think... The bronze cast is the most magnificent piece of fakery. You know, the fact that it's... What, what the process is doing is taking a print off a surface. And then that printed surface is, what, a maximum of centimetre thick. And inside is this void. Big void. And yet it's claiming this huge solidity. And I think that act of deceit is absolutely fantastic. And so, in a way, I'm playing with the same kinds of deceits, that sometimes things look like cement, but they're more likely to be paint, and they build up a tremendous weight, not necessarily through the inherent quality of the original material, which might be something like polystyrene, but they build that weight through what I add on to them in terms of the surface, which can be aspiring to look like other kinds of building materials like cement or stone or those kinds of very, very solid and heavy materials. So, so you don't want the work to look heavy or to look light. You want it to look like it could be either. Yes, I think I want that an ambiguity, but I'm very aware that there is a sort of act of fakery, which I see as theatre, in what that process is doing. I'm fascinated mm. by this, these phrases, and those of you in the theatre, and I know there's an expert somewhere here, <laughs> who ran the Dallas Opera House, somewhere. I can see him there. <laughs> I, that phrase, which is suspension of belief and suspension of disbelief, I don't quite understand what the difference is between those two statements. I know they are different, but I think sculpture employs the same kind of tactics of trying to make you believe in something that isn't actually true in the literal sense. You know, a bronze is hollow, it's not a solid thing, it's playing with being that, you right. know. I mean, stone is probably one of the most authentic materials there is in sculpture and wood in the, in the way maybe Brancusi used it. My guest is Philida Barlow in a program taped live at the Nasher Sculpture Center. We'll be right back after a break. Now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan, Soldier, Spectre, Shaman. The Figure and the Second World War. Featuring work in a wide variety of mediums by more than 30 international artists, including David Smith, Louise Bourgeois, and Henry Darger, this exhibition presents a range of artistic responses to World War II in which the human body serves as subject and object, mirror and metaphor. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Hammer Museum presents Uh-Oh, the most comprehensive survey of the Los Angeles-based artist and writer, Frances Stark. This exhibition tracks her 25-year career, from early works on paper to more recent performances, animated films, and videos, including her critically acclaimed works My Best Thing and Bobby Jesus's Alma Mater, backed with Reading the Book of David and or Paying Attention is Free. 
Stark's singular practice explores her own life through an extraordinary range of subjects and mediums while offering a clever critique of contemporary culture. Uh-oh is on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles October 11th to January 24th. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. And now back to my conversation with Phyllida Barlow, taped live at the Nasher Sculpture Center. So speaking of theatricality, I mentioned <coughs> Stockade earlier, which is actually called Untitled Stockade 2015, for the purposes of shorthand. There is this incredible theatrical moment as you walk around the piece, and then as I mentioned earlier, you're encouraged to look up, and there is this reveal. What about activating the interior of something, physically, visually, whatever the word is, what about activating the interior appealed to you? Because it's playing with that state of ambiguity and making it very, very clear that everything that is seen is actually incredibly simply built. There is no trickery. What, what you see is what you get at that moment when you go through the back and look in. And there's a fascination, from my point of view, of a sort of front-of-house display and then a, a sort of front-stage display and a backstage yeah. acknowledgement. And backstage, it's all pulleys and weights and gantries and everything that's supporting this moment of pretense at the front that's got to be believed. And I think, sculpturally, that for me becomes intriguing. So being able to see the interior and just see that it's got a very similar structure holding it all in place as the boxes, the crates in the other gallery makes it in a way have its own dramatic content. You know, the front is all drama and show and the back becomes in a way much more self-aware in some ways of its own physicality. And the fact that it's actually cantilevered, it's, it's balanced, then makes all those struts and cross braces absolutely essential to how it's perched on that slalom of black pallets. It's in a way an object on a base, on a plinth, which is another sort of sculptural trope. It's just a very re-manipulated one. In, in that sense, I think the way I work and the way I think sculpturally is incredibly traditional. You know, it's about taking a lot of those very, very ancient sculptural concerns, but reconfiguring them so they're heavily disguised and in a way become something else. So you've been playing with this house-ish form for mm. four or five years now. And it seems to me that every time you make one of these pieces, you show us a little bit more of the inside. That mm. there's been a progression of, you know, you couldn't quite see in it, or you couldn't see much that was in it. And mm. the piece at the Carnegie, you kind of recoiled in horror when I told you I was jumping up to try to look over the top, yes. and you pointed out to me I was being stupid because I could have just looked from the bottom. <laughs> are you are you conscious of letting people, or is that intentional? letting people see more each time? Mm, that... I, I think it'd be wonderful if people were able to enter sculpture galleries crawling on all fours so that they had an entirely different view of everything. I know that's not very... You could do it friendly. next. You could do that now. I certainly couldn't do it because I've got <laughs> false knees. But I, I, I think the eye level thing is, is a kind of problem with sculpture, you know, and I think that, you know, certainly in a city like Rome, you've got sculpture high, low, you know, all over the place, and it's, it's, it's fantastic, you know. It only seems to have been a 20th century kind of convention, in a way, that sculpture should be an eye-level art form, you know, but actually, historically, it's, it's never been that, you know, and I think that you know, the idea of crouching to see something or just 
going lower down to see what it is. And that, that was a real discovery here because of the staircases taking you up into the galleries. That is an and, awesome thing here, yeah. Yeah, really remarkable to be in a gallery where that is possible, that, that sculpture can be seen from way below and then you come into it. It's, it was a tremendous feeling that when we were setting up the pieces. We've been talking about, I guess, every piece we've talked about really in terms of form and space. We haven't talked about color at all. Mm. Stockade's probably a good place to start with that. So mm. the outside of the piece is a very recognizable Barlowian palette, one that's been in your work for a number of years now. What is the relationship between the color, or is there one, between the colors you use inside Stockade on the two by fours, mm. inside Stockade, and the colors we see on the outside? I think it's just a sort of aesthetic playfulness is to drag the color inside just as a trace. I don't think there's much more to say than that. It's almost in a way like a painting where maybe the neutral color of the canvas, if it is neutral, isn't doing quite enough. And so I took mm. the tim we took the timbers out and we just washed them with, with paint. But actually, a lot of those, I have to remember, come from another work. And so they were already painted. And a lot of the wood in the studio gets painted by default. You know, It's used for other works to rest on, and then it gradually accretes. <laughs> so do you keep track of, either in a formal way or in an informal way, what you're reusing from what exhibitions and installations? Mm. All the black palettes under the uh, house come from the Tate. They're the Tate chopped up. And then the... <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're those colored things there. Yeah, web images are, of them on manpodcast.com. They have become some of the, the lengths of wood inside the stockade piece. So, is so that... things are constantly, I mean, none of the tape work exists anymore. It only exists in my studio in great stacks of timber and things like that. So it's an incredible resource for future works. Is and the physical relationship to the previous work conceptually important to you, or is it just part of the practice and part of the it's, it's an evolutionary thing. It's, oh, oh that I did that there. I now want to try it here. Yes, and I want to try it again in a different way. As, as one goes through this show or, or any Philip Barla show, the, the title cards list the materials of, of the pieces, and they're, they're pretty good reading in and of themselves because there's kind of a lot in everything. And I'm curious about how you get to some of your materials and why they interest you. So for, for Fallen Tires, which is the piece with kind of the grayish painted meshy round forms. The heap of stuff. Yeah, the right. heap yeah. of stuff. You said it, not me. <laughs> uh, so I thought maybe that meshy painted the, material would be a good place to mm. maybe ask you to explain what about that material interests you. Well, the, all materials I use are materials that I can change because my process of making is very restless. It doesn't, I don't necessarily find a result immediately. So the materials enable me to cut into them or remove them or make new decisions. The meshy material is as old as the hills. The Egyptians were using it. It's called scrim. It comes in big rolls, you cut off a length of it, and you can soak it in a material like cement or plaster, and then it sets hard, and it adds extra strength to the plaster and the cement. So it's a very expedient material to use for a modeling process. So its appeal was its, was its expediency rather than... Initially, it's its expediency, mm. and then I try to ex exploit it aesthetically as well, in the sense that usually what happens with scrim, certainly if you look at a Henry Moore, which are built in that way, the scrim is kind of obliterated. And I remember him saying, you know, you don't want to show any of that material because it, it shows how the things are made. And I never quite understood the logic of that, you know. So 
in his works, you will never see the scrim, although in the original plasters, there it's there, you know, as it is in a lot of sculptors' work who use those materials. Another material I wanted to ask you about was fabric yeah. that you use in the downstairs piece at the Nasher. It's kind of a forest of where, where, the, where the fabric is the branches of, mm. and, and, and foliage of the trees, and, and two-by-fours make up, make up the trunks. So you've played with fabric before, so in a, mm. in a piece at the Des Moines Arts Center four years ago, three years ago, something like that. You draped it over two forms two years mm. ago. You draped the fabric over forms, mm. and here the fabric is supported by, by these by these two by fours. Mm. For you, what was the difference between draping and and flag like supporting? I think it's a formal one that the I started using these banners about ten years ago, maybe longer ago, as a kind of prop almost that would intervene in the in the space with a mm. flat blast of colour that acted almost gesturally, almost like a gestural piece of colour. In fact, in the Dallas show I did at UTD, there was a huge orange banner in that show, so it's longer than 10 years that I've been using them. For me, they don't really connect with nature. They collect, connect with human behaviour. They're both, you know, the, the object that we see on the streets maybe for protest or demonstration. They're also the object that I can be identified with festivity. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I yeah. think the blank, the blank banner, which is neither one thing or the other, fascinates me. It's like something that has its own inherent about-to-be-something. And to me, the banner is also something that can be moved. You know, so there's the potential for the crowd of banners to almost take up arms and start... <laughs> <laughs> to move up stairs. Marching, yes, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yet as a static object, it becomes, for me, very painterly and pictorial, especially as you come down the stairs. So colour is both a kind of gestural intervention in a, in a space, but also takes up a kind of formal residence there or habitation there of cutting through occupying and has has a potential in the case of the banners to a potential for movement the ones over the awnings was in a way rather similar but i wanted to make the shape not an upright thing but a thing coming into the space across the space, and that's why they're draped in that way. So I wanted a very solid architectural form that was actually based on the kind of awnings that you can see in over shop windows or all sorts of places like over doorways, but then kind of counteract that architectural form with something that was very unusual to that, which was draping them with the, with the colored fabric. When you have as much fabric as you have in a, a hard museum space, one of the things that happens is it soaks up sound. So mm. as you go through the piece yes. here, so is that intentional or is that a no, nice no, byproduct? No, that, no, that's not intentional, but it's, it was something I noticed straight away. You know, I have a very odd relationship with all these fallouts from making work that it inevitably happens because I have absolutely no control over how things will get used or experienced. But to me, sculpture is a silent, still art form. And we are the things that agitate it. We walk around it, we walk through it or against it, you know, but the thing itself is still and silent and that's what I personally love about it but the fact that the banners have offered another sentient experience you know it wasn't in my wasn't on the script for them at all mm. you know um, but it's interesting that they yeah. do do that yeah so one of the things that Asher asked you to do was to pick some works from the permanent collection mm. that 
that you wanted up while your stuff was up. And if somebody had told me you were going to pick three Joel Shapiros, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I never <laughs> in a million years would have seen that coming. So we'll have images of all three of the Shapiros you pick on, on manpodcast.com. Has he been important to you for a long time? Why did you pick those three? Well, I picked the blue crate because obviously it's, that's how I should have done them. <laughs> <laughs> the, the blue crate uh, in the Nasser collection has three legs, yes. and yeah. fill it as upturned crates yeah. have seven or eight. Yes, I know. So he, he, it just was the most wonderful sort of serendipitous experience to see that work in the collection, so it had to go in. And then I've always loved his sort of split, semi-collapsed, or things that are caught in a very uncomfortable moment formally. They look as if they're about to do the splits or mm -hmm. fall over. And I think that plays with the sculptural language so brilliantly, you know, that sculpture isn't a table, it's not a chair. They, those things can be used, and I have used them up there, but they... They want to take those kinds of the, the familiar and take it by surprise and change it and make it do and behave in ways that things don't usually behave. And I think he, he does it with his work very, very successfully. And it's hard to figure out how heavy those pieces are. Mm, exactly. I mean, there is yes, that weightlessness we were talking yes, about before. Yeah. Or quite how it does I still stand in that, that way. I have no yes, idea how this yes, thing stands yes. up. <laughs> A couple other art, art history references in, mm. in the pieces. So in, in one of the kind of boulder type forms inside mm. here, there is a wooden and foam lined horseshoe-like shape mm -hmm. sticking out. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it feels like a pretty direct Richard Deacon quotation. <laughs> it, wasn't, it isn't meant to be. If it is, I, you know, I, I love Richard Deacon's work, some of it. So that would be a great honor, but it, it was, it's actually based on some, I've been making those boulder-like shapes for some time and adding various prosthetic yes. interventions into them. And it's, it's really, they're really about giving the object a, a direction. It's almost like sticking a tongue out for me rather than a horseshoe. I know we're in Texas. Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten who it was who said to me, thank you for the reference to Texas with the horseshoe shape. <laughs> and uh, I hadn't actually thought, I, I thought of it as a sort of a kind of gesture that was pointing outwards or taking, taking the object away from its position there and making it look into another mm. direction. So that's what the aim of those ones, those added pieces were. How much do those boulder-type shapes have to do with Franz Vest? Probably an enormous amount. <laughs> uh, his early work is some of my absolute favourite work. And, but I think the, West, the Franz West influence is actually more in the horseshoe-shaped, horseshoe the, the curved plaster piece in the first room which you can enter. I mean, I'm thinking of Franz West's earlier works which you actually stepped mm. into. Or I'm, picked up. Or, yes, yeah. yeah, exactly, yes. I mean, so Franz Vest and yours, I mean, he's, he's no longer with us, of course, mm. but your careers do more or less line up, mm. overlap. Do you remember when you became aware of his work uh, and, and, then, and then when you think his work began to inform yours? Oh, I mean, the minute I saw it, I felt Oh, right this, is, this is a fantastic way of making the object have a very specific relationship with the viewer. You and know, the viewer's and, body. Yeah. Yes, and a, a, quite a controlled relationship. I don't think I've ever done that, but I think with the objects that went on televisions and on chairs, in some ways were referencing that in an obtuse kind of way, you know, but I think especially the fact that he used plaster and he used it in this very quick, expedient way. Enough was enough was also a great influence, you know. And, but I think to then make a plaster object be something that you could 
enter and use and handle was also, I don't know, it just was like taking something that's usually used as quite a architectural static kind of material and make it become very bodily was very attractive. So those early Franz Vest pieces that viewers, which is a word which only sort of fits, were mm. meant to pick up and handle were called adaptives. Mm. And they had these plaster forms on one end and then kind of a black stick coming out of them. So you mm. could pick them up and swing mm. them and you know use it like a baseball bat or a golf club or whatever. Mm. And now that you mention it, it does kind of seem like with Untitled Holder, the U-shaped piece, that there is a little bit of a temptation to you know, take a brick out of the wall. And was that <laughs> intentional, that you want people to feel like, I'm not, I'm not suggesting they do it, but. I definitely wanted it to be a work that would draw you into the space. And in fact, my first choice of citing it went very awry, it just killed it stone dead and then we, thanks to Jed. <laughs> Jed Morris, curator here Jed, at the Nature. Yes, yes. We tried four different locations for it, so we had to put it up and down four times and eventually freed it of all its kind of rather strict regulations I had imposed on it and just left it in the middle of the space where it, I think it, it's allowed to do its own thing very well. But I think this issue of touch is... For me, problematic. Uh, I think touch is a language. It's a non-verbal language and how you imagine touching something seems to me to be more important than actually reaching out and touching it where the minute you've touched it, the, the mystery or the imaginative process gets solved. You know, that's closure on it. And I think there are we talked about it yesterday, there are numerous art objects where there is a longing to touch or a longing to be interested in what this thing is. But I think that is up to us to work out. It's what we then want to imagine this might be. Is it hot or cold? And there are artists who now very much play with that, like Pierre Huyg made the figurative sculpture that is actually hot when you touch it. <laughs> I, I think that's a, a sort of fascinating game. I, I found that work, for me, very, you know, the minute you'd done that action, I didn't quite know what else there was to discover about it. I think it was more interesting in, in a sense where you became very aware that it was heated up. But to actually touch it meant that something ended, you know, you'd solved it. And I think I have personally a problem with art where there is that final answer. There is a one-line answer to the experience that you're engaging with. So to me, touch is one of the great, great sort of mysteries of how we interpret the surface that's in front of us, what it might be, whether it's hot, cold, smooth or rough. It just seems a very beautiful experience to be engaging with. I prefer people not to touch my work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and certainly not to remove a brick from it because I'm <laughs> concerned about their, their safety more than I am oh, about yeah. the object. <laughs> I've, I've read you talk about that tension that the potential of tactility creates in the past. Is that something that you came to through working in your studio on a daily basis? Or is this something that goes back to when you were a teenager and touched something at the tape you shouldn't have? I think it came very much from first beginning to work with clay, that wow. you could work clay forever and ever and it would just die. And then, you, you know, barely touching it, if you were confident enough, you could get exactly the right moment caught there just through the minimal minimal amount of touching and so there were, there were all these different ways of touching and I was always interested in the issue about Eva Hess who seems to be somebody who's considered to be a very tactile artist but it's interesting that a lot of her work was hardly touched at all because of the materials being so lethal yeah. I think she used 
very particular wooden tongs to dip the muslin into the resin, etc. You know, and yet you think of a, an artist like McCracken with these highly... His early work, which were also resin, yeah. which look untouched, but every inch of them is, you know, sanded and sanded and sanded until it reaches that high specification, that high, shiny look about it. So there's a sort of weird paradox about what might be considered a cool object like a John McCracken and a hot object like Eva Hess, where they're actually, the processes are very reversed. And I think that was a kind of epiphany early on with the handling of materials, you know. Does that have mm. something to do with, so the upturned crates, which mm. come up close to the gallery ceiling, are some of the most, at least visually tactile pieces in the show. Is that part of why they ended up up there? Yes, I think so. There's a sort of, I, I think the longing to do is a really powerful human instinct. And I think encouraging or, for me, allowing that to be a very emotional and thoughtful process and a very difficult thing to articulate verbally, as I think a lot of the senses are, you know. It, it's, it's a need to explore that with materials, to allow the materials to maybe engender that, those desires and hopefully make them become very positive experience about how and why you would want to touch. I mean, I think for me, you know, this sounds so fanciful and sentimental, you know, touching a dog or stroking a dog, I desperately miss my dog who died whenever it was, two or three years ago now. But I still miss that wonderful, that head that's there, you know, and always there. And it's, I think there are those very daily, very moving experiences that we go through, whether it's, you know, embracing our children or our loved ones. They're all highly powerful and wonderful experiences. And for me, sculpture can, can offer that as not as a sort of literal experience where you've got to carry it out, but you, you can be reminded of those qualities that we have, as well as the opposite, that maybe there are things that are quite repellent as well. I think they operate in tandem, and I think they're part of a very powerful repertoire of sensations that sculpture can explore. You did an interview a couple of years ago, or a conversation, I should say, with Vincent Fecto in, in Bomb Magazine. Oh, yes, yes. And one of the things that the two of you, I think it was the two of you, discussed mm -hmm. was what artists, and in this case sculptors, of course, it, you know, what is the last thing they do in making yes, a piece, yes, and then yes. why it was the last thing mm. They, mm. they do in making a piece. So what was the last thing you did here, and why was it the end, the finish? It was all so on the go. The last sort of proper physical thing was actually binding the cemented canvas round the hanging monument. Oh. Um, but I worked on it with three people. Do you mean in terms of a physical yeah, action? Yeah. Yes, that was the last thing. So why was, we that, did. why was that the last? Well, I'll tell you what, we made, I made one. I made one earlier, as they do in the cooking programs. <laughs> <laughs> And there was a, a bit of a crisis with transport. <laughs> it was too big for the steel containers to mm. come across the sea. So within oh five days flat, we knocked up another one. So I and three, three assistants made the one that's there now that does fit into the container. And so that was the last thing. And the last actual gestures were the binding of the, the, with the strips of torn canvas. The canvas came from the Tate as well. It was ripped up into strips, dipped into cement and wrapped round as if it was like spools of some material. And then in order to hold that all in place, I then dipped long strips of scrim into cement and then 
added that on. But that's an interesting... Really? Yeah, uh, then we adjusted the weight of it, mm. and we had to adjust the weight of it again here. But that's an interesting case in point, because I didn't quite know when that one was finished. And I kept on going and going, and then it was... Rupert and Adam, who are well, the assistants here, who said, look, you've got to stop or it's the next crisis we're going to have. It's just <laughs> going to be too heavy to go into the It, it is museum. impossible to figure how heavy that, 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 that It's a little bit is. heavy. <laughs> is, is, is its weight... So, so the, the thing the, that holds it up yes, um, the, um, it has all the, these kind of steel beams. Yes, all of that is absolutely essential to supporting it. None of that, although we were trying to m make it look shambolic in some way. It looks uh, compositional. Yeah, compositional, that's a better way. <laughs> but it's also utilitarian then. Yes, absolutely, yes. Because when I was so, trying to solve the Joel Shapiro mystery, that was my first guess, mm, is that mm. there was some Joel Shapiro in that stuff, in all that yes. steel. But no. On the back of that steel structure are a load of boxes filled with sand that then adds yeah extra ballast to making sure it just doesn't <laughs> keel over. So it's a real kind of double security job on that one. But in terms of the wrapping, mm. you, you know, there's a, there was a side of me that just could have gone on and on and on doing it. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I think that thing of where something stops, I mean, how do we know what the last mark is on a Jackson Pollock or almost any painting? You know, it's quite interesting the point where an artist steps back and says, enough, you know, and maybe there are a lot of works where it actually isn't enough, you know, the, even a Cezanne, you know. You Painters have been known to go back to painting. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Barlow, thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs>